0: You're listening to Boss Tone Radio, Talk for Guitar, presented by BossUS.com. Hey, welcome to Boss Tone Radio. My name is Paul Hansen. This is the 37th edition, and as usual, we have a very interesting guest. This is Billy Duffy from the English band the cult. Among the cult's top hits are She Sells Sanctuary, Love Removal Machine, and Fire Woman. Billy has a really interesting approach to guitar, kind of minimalist and straight-ahead rock. And most of the time, he plays a Gretsch Falcon, which is a big old hollow-body guitar. And in fact, he's got his own Gretsch model that's out in stores right now. It's called Billy Duffy's Signature Bird of Prey. So, without further ado, let's talk to Billy. Hi, Billy. Yeah,
1: hey, Paul. How you doing, man?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you good?
0: Yep. Hey, so, um, are you on the East Coast right now? Yes, I am. Are you guys playing gigs? Are you on tour?
1: Nope. No, the band's not on the road right now. We're on a bit of a break. Probably on tour in the summer. I would imagine that the cult cool. I think there's plans for us to tour in the summer, so... We're taking a bit of a break writing some new songs for our next album for two thousand and fourteen.
0: You got tired of just being in the, the beautiful sunshine of l a.
1: Yeah, well, I was in the beautiful sunshine of Florida, so
0: oh my gosh, no fair. <laughs> <laughs>
1: different kind of different kind of sunshine, but
0: it is. So, um, hey, let's go back in time. You didn't hey. always live in l a. You grew up in uh, Manchester. I certainly did. What was it like growing up in Manchester?
1: Uh, Manchester great, man. It was, uh, you know, it's was, it was a fun town. Um, how do I explain it? There was a, a nice interest in uh, music and the arts. So the atmosphere was pretty good. You know, people were quite enthusiastic about going to gigs and stuff, you know. Uh-huh. That was pretty cool, and we embraced punk rock pretty quick. So that was kind of good, too. You know, Manchester was uh, probably the first city outside of london to really kind of embrace you know the punk rock thing that, that happened in like 76 and 77 right so that, that made it interesting you know
0: i heard you in an interview talking about how some of the other guitar players on the block were better players than you it just sounded like there were guitar players everywhere
1: <laughs> well that's what everybody wanted to be pretty much everybody wanted to be a guitar hero to be quite honest with you i mean uh-huh. It Was something you could do, you know. Not everybody could uh, could sing you nor know, wanted to be a lead singer, but I sing to me a lot of guys. That was the coolest thing you could be in like <laughs> 74, 75, 76. I couldn't imagine being wanted to be anything else, really. Right. And so did a load of other guys. So, uh, yeah, I certainly wasn't the best guitar player in my neighborhood.
0: <laughs> I read you were influenced in the early years by Led Zeppelin and Thin Lizzy and Queen.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, classic. Good, good rock, melodic blues-based rock. Probably free. Oh yeah, that company. You know, to be quite honest with you, I do remember kind of shying away from the more what I considered obvious, you know, bands that everybody liked. Trying to discover slightly more obscure bands it might have been a little bit of musical snobbery, you know, elitism creeping in. I just didn't <laughs> want to like follow the herd. <laughs> but uh, you know, so that was a bit of a passion of mine, trying to find obscure bands. But I remember buying uh houses of the holy it was my first led zeppelin album so i kind of went in at the middle
0: oh yeah with,
1: with zeppelin and uh yeah i remember buying a zz top single on on vinyl on london records for like 15 cents
0: oh my gosh was it like uh lagrange or yeah it was
1: lagrange and such oh man stuff like you know stuff like that it was just what we did that was what was exciting you know uh-huh. no internet no oh, cell phones.
0: Right. Yeah, it's uh, hard to imagine.
1: Hard to imagine a world with such medieval, Yeah, you know, you almost think we were into jousting. And uh...
0: <laughs> I remember telling my daughters, or one of my daughters, that we didn't have microwaves when we were a kid. Yeah, all that. Yeah, and they couldn't believe it. No microwave? How did you eat? Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, completely, completely crazy. So that was it, you know, pretty Mm -hmm. standard in there. But then the punk thing was pretty important in the UK in terms of kind of a movement. And, you know, it had a sort of a sociological impact in the UK because the country was a little bit uh, financially depressed. So the significance of punk really to us was accessibility. Suddenly it really was possible to think that, you know, what was a hobby could be real, you know, and, and the excitement. And you got to remember, you know, Led Zeppelin were playing gigs to like, you know, 150,000 people in a capital right. somewhere. And <laughs> to my neighborhood, you know, we couldn't afford to get the bus into the center of our town to walk around and do nothing. <laughs> so the idea yeah. of one, that I've seen a band of that size and caliber is uh-huh. not real for us. But there were a lot of smaller bands. Queen, Motley Hoopal, Finn Lizzie, mm-hmm. um, who were more accessible. And I pretty much saw an endless list of bands in the mid 70s in Manchester Lynyrd Skinner, Blue Oyster Cult, Ted Nugent.
0: Wow.
1: Right when punk was happening, and then transitioned into kind of ACDC uh, when they came around, and people almost thought they were a punk band at first. And, uh, you know, it was just an interesting time. That's all really I want to say about it. And Manchester was a, a town that really did embrace uh-huh. music. Although we didn't have, at that point, have that many great bands ourselves, I mean, other than the Hollies. I mean, the we Hollies, didn't really have any compared to the Beatles, you know.
0: Were, were the Smiths a Manchester band?
1: Uh, Smiths were very much a Manchester band, but they they didn't really get going until the early to mid-80s. In the mid-70s, there wasn't a lot going on, you know. I'm ter- uh-huh. that, Those are my formative years, you know.
0: So in the 80s, somehow you got involved with the Smiths. That's Johnny Marr on guitar and Stephen Morrissey. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, I mean, actually, I mean, in the 80s, they were going about their business being the Smiths. I was going about my business with being Asprey being the Colt. Um, uh-huh. Johnny Marr I knew from high school. Wow. Yeah, me and him go back to kind of like Johnny would come and look at, watch, and hang out when my high school band would play. Wow. Lived in the neighborhood. And so that was kind of the connection there with Johnny, and we're still kind of friends to this day. And so I've known him since then. And then um, our career's kind of paralleled in a lot of ways in terms of how we got out of Manchester, how we got jobs and stuff to, to support our rock and roll habit, you know, and working and clothes and fashion. And there's a lot of similarities. And Morrissey was just the guy who I knew because we were all big fans of the New York Dolls. Oh, wow. And we loved Iggy and the Stooges and Patty Smith and those kind of bands. When Punk came, it really introduced us getting into that kind of American, you know, I wouldn't call it punk, but, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of punk-influenced scene. So we were into the MC5, and the Dolls, especially, and Morrissey was just a New York Dolls obsessive who used to hang out at all the gigs. And, you know, we all became friends, and, um, you know, uh, for one short period, me and him had a band together. Uh, Before the Smiths, we wrote a few songs, did a couple of gigs, Uh Uh, but nothing really came of it. That was, like, in '78. And that—that's just what happened. You know, we—I I wrote like ten songs with him, all of which I've forgotten. Gosh. And, uh, <laughs> and we did a couple of shows, and then I pursued my career in London. He stayed in Manchester and, hooked, and met up with Johnny Marr, who I'd known, and blah blah blah. So that's kind of how the Smiths. I think I actually introduced them at a Patti Smith gig in Manchester in
0: 1978. Johnny Marr and Stephen
1: Morrissey. Yeah, I introduced them at a gig. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, so in the early 80s, is that when you moved to London? London
1: in 1979. And by 1981, I was in a band called Theatre of Hate and touring professionally. And sort of, I ended up parting company with that band. By 83, I'd formed The Death Cult with Ian Asprey. Basically, it's the same band as now. We just took Death off the name.
0: I want to ask you about Theatre of Hate. I saw a YouTube video of you guys on top of the pops and um, yeah,
1: that that was the day that my dad stopped asking me when I was going to get a real job
0: <laughs> well you were working in a clothes store before that
1: yeah that's true i mean it was a, it was a uh-huh. cool clothes store and a very very fashionable men's rock and roll outfit as in london it was about uh-huh. as cool a job as you could have wow. than being in a band you know what i'm saying <laughs>
0: well, i read that you quit your job i guess And then that's when, did you buy your Falcon um, hollow body guitar then?
1: Yeah, that was when I got into, yeah, that right around then. I I basically was living in London, was in a few little bands, started with the Stray Cats, who kind of got big in England first. Right. They were kind of around and they actually came and kind of bought clothes at the shop I worked in. Wow. I went to see them play and they were just incredible. And I was like, wow, that Gretch is amazing. And it, reminded me of seeing Gretsch's with like Neil Young and Crazy Horse and stuff like that. Uh And that was where it kind of started. When I got in Theatre of Hate, I I was searching for kind of a different sound. Right. And and a lot of bands in the early 80s were searching for a new sound. We didn't really just want to sound like bad versions of the Sex Pistols because (laughs) that had already been done. Yeah. And so we're searching. And one of the ways I thought found to express myself was by a big white Gretsch. And play it, and it had a different kind of more cinematic, twangy sound. That was I wouldn't say rockabilly, but it was uh-huh. it was partially that, partially seeing Brian Setzer. And I love rockabilly, and I love rock and roll. And I went through a phase really digging, you know, a lot of the classic rockabilly music, and still do. But you know, I never wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I I admired the energy and the imagery, but I didn't really want to kind of become a, a rockabilly musician. So a lot of those influences came together and, uh, you know, the the White Falcon just sort of became synonymous with the cult. You know, the big white guitar um, kind of stuck with me still today on and off, you know.
0: You know, I um, do research for Guitar World magazine sometimes and I just discovered that Pete Townsend used a Gretsch Chet Atkins on Who's Next. I
1: mean, a lot of guys use them in the studio. I think you'll find Mm -hmm. most guitar players have one in the old uh, lockup. (laughs) <laughs> it, they don't all use them live and i think that was the difference for right. me i was determined maybe out of stupidity but i was determined to try and take a Gretsch and really rock out with it treat it like a les ball and get some kind of you know real aggression out of it but keep some of that interesting Gretsch twang
0: well you really are the meat and potatoes guitar player just killer rhythms and you know one thing i notice about all your stuff is that you're always just Ringing in tune—is this an obsession you have? Are you constantly tuning your guitar because it's just always in tune?
1: No, no, I'm hope I'm pretty hopeless at tuning guitars. I uh, <laughs> use an array of highly paid professional uh, technicians to do that for me because I'm so useless. <laughs> it. I just love melody and, and uh-huh. it's honorable I, I don't think there's anything wrong with simplicity. I think it's an art form.
0: Uh, I it's agree.
1: Underrated and I think. You know, a combination of punk rock and ACDC made me realize there was a great beauty and simplicity, and I never... I was possibly too lazy, to be totally honest, to become a guitar player who could really shred.
0: Uh
1: It almost seemed like a bit too much work. I was a bit too interested in going out and having fun (laughs) and sitting at home practicing scales, but I always was interested in melody and riffs, uh-huh. And, and solos when they're appropriate right. that, that elevate the song, but maybe stuff that you can, solos you can whistle or solos that are, you know, memorable. Right. Rather than just technical exercises in themselves, you know. John Sykes once said to me, he was a good friend of mine, John Sykes.
0: From Whitesnake, yeah.
1: You know, I always thought I wanted to be the fastest guitar player in the world, but you realize eventually at some point that, like, the gunslinger, there's always going to be somebody faster.
0: yeah. Yeah, oh, man.
1: And so for me, it it was more interested in songwriting, the experience of being a band, and uh, the whole rounded experience rather than the technical ability.
0: Well, and also writing, you and Ian Asbury just uh, wrote some killer songs, and you guys wrote all the material in the cult, correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, 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 we did, yeah.
0: So, and some of those riffs are just, Amazing. I think She Sells Sanctuary with the open strings ringing out is just amazing. You know what else I noticed about that song is the bass is so solid. You just had a great bass player. Was he the same guy throughout the band?
1: He he was in the band from the beginning until Uh Sonic Temple and then he sort of retired. He couldn't take the lifestyle.
0: Right. It really is a lifestyle of just being on the road. Yeah,
1: we're still friends. He played with us. We did did an album, the Love Album. We Mm -hmm. did a tour. We played that, and uh, he he jumped up on stage and joined us. uh, Uh, Yeah, he had a a style that was very important. And also, you've got to remember, in the mid-'80s, dance music was very important. So part of the underpinning of what was going on for us at that time, was to, to, our songs were getting made into 12-inch mixes that were getting played in clubs.
0: Right. And people, Kinda, went... and
1: I, I mean, like, gothic, kind of underground. Everywhere in the world, there was kind of like a rock club, but the music was kind of dance-orientated. Right. And that was a way that we broke through by doing, you know, Sanctuary was an example of that. And many other bands did similar stuff where we were conscious of, the, the, like, nightclubs because until sanctuary you know we we never got on the charts we were doing gigs to thousands of people but we never got on the charts right and then sanctuary was the song that changed that for the call and made us more known in the uk as a mainstream band and uh well that was part of our um, way of doing stuff you know yeah and that whole album the love Mm -hmm. album i played probably 98 percent of all the guitars on it on a white falcon The White Falcon, pretty much. Ian might have had some sort of Telecaster I might have used. Uh And I know we had a Vox, one of those Vox 12-string, the Teardrop. You know, somebody discovered a bunch of those in a warehouse somewhere in London, and they came came about. But 98% of the guitar on that is the White Falcon.
0: And on this She Sells Sanctuary song, you have this really kind of freaky effects kind of intro. I heard that you used a violin bow on that.
1: No, not exactly. It's related. It's part of the story. Uh-huh. Actually, we were in a studio where they used to record a lot of um, orchestral soundtrack.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, we went there because Led Zeppelin did their first two albums there and free recorded there.
0: Oh, my gosh. So
1: it's a studio called Olympic.
0: Olympic, of course. My gosh, the yeah. epic studio.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went there, and it was... Um, you know, it was kind of a contrarian move because everybody wanted to work in high-tech studios, and this was a very expensive, low-tech studio. But we kind of captured some magic. I guess we tried to channel the ghosts of Zeppelin <laughs> and Free and the bands that we, we were really impressed by. Uh-huh. And um, the story really relates to the boss. I I'd used was using a lot of boss pedals and still do use predominantly boss pedals. Uh-huh. And... Um, Quickly, the story's been around elsewhere, but I um, was doing some guitars and I found a violin bow and just turned the echo on, because I think we'd been watching The Song Remains the Same, where Jimmy Pace did the, uh,
0: of course. Just the
1: violin bow thing, you yeah. know? Yeah. So I was mimicking that, and just for, to for, to go into overkill, I switched on every pedal that I had on my little pedal board, and <laughs> um, just made this ridiculous kind of noise and I like to think it was me. It could have been the producer. It might have been Ian said, "Why don't you... the intro to She's So Sanctuary actually was only gonna be the middle section. The song used right. to just start with the kind of snare hit.
0: Uh-huh. And somebody
1: came up with the idea of playing the middle section of the song as an intro mm-hmm. using those sounds and I kind of you know threw the violin bow away and started picking. At the, the the D string and the G string close to the bridge, uh-huh. and came up with that. So did, that kind of that—that was how it happened, uh-huh. really.
0: So, did you have? It must have been a del, uh, DD2, maybe delay, and
1: uh, I think it's the DD2, the Maroon analog delay that they don't make anymore.
0: And, oh yeah, yeah.
1: And whatever was the early digital delay? I had one of each
0: DM2 and probably the DD2.
1: Yeah, I mean right. we're talking eighty-five, so right. You know,
0: And then a Um, flanger? Did you have a flanger on?
1: I had a a flanger, um, and I used a phaser, but I'm not sure which was switched on. I can't, you know, I couldn't under oath. Uh I think (laughs) think the flanger's on.
0: Kind of sounds like the flanger. And
1: then then the two delays, you know, one's on a shorter kind of, the analog was on like a slap delay Uh that I really only ever used in conjunction with the longer delay, which was the digital delay, and I used them together to create kind of some sort of pulsing. You know, but I mean, I'm not the only guy out there who was playing, things think back, you know, Echo and the Bunny Men, you know, Will Sargent. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys were playing around with effects, you know, right. delays to get kind of different voicings.
0: Was The Edge from U2, was he out doing that yet?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was all, it was all happening at the same time, yeah. yeah. It was all the same era, you know, and a lot of guys just playing around trying to find our own sound and our own... Uh So, point of view. So that was how Sanctuary happened, and uh, you know, and and the other important thing, which is also Boss related or Roland related, is the fact that a huge part of that sound is also the JC one hundred and twenty combo. Right. All that effects went into a JC one hundred and twenty that I split with another. I obviously used a valve amp as well, and my whole thing was the JC one hundred and twenty plus, you know, whatever amp I could use, Marshall whatever, you know, a valve amp to give it some balls.
0: You didn't use the JC120 at the same time as the valve amps, did you? Always,
1: yeah. Simultaneous, oh, you my friend.
0: So your, your JC120, were the effects going through that and not the valve amp?
1: No, nope, they were going through both. It's okay, very all-or-nothing type approach. It was very <laughs> not, <laughs> not sophisticated enough as a player. I was too busy drinking. To worry about that kind of stuff, I just, you know, they all went through both amps and, you know, we mic'd them up and it's made this kind of glorious racket.
0: Now, you've talked about the um using the chorus on the JC 120, you know, the chorus that's built in. One thing about that chorus is that it is stereo, there are two amplifiers amplifying the speakers separately, and the chorus is actually affected between the two. Speakers, do you ever mic up both speakers? And
1: always, always mic, always mic both speakers and pan them. Always, <laughs> oh yes, give my secrets away. Yeah, no, we always mic them and pan them. I still do it today. I'm talking about stuff that I still do to this day. I've never, I don't use a chorus pedal, really. I've never, because of that, I can never get the same effect out of a chorus pedal. It just doesn't work the same. Ah. So so that's the, that's the deal. It's the Roland JC-120 of that particular sound. I mean, there's been times in my career when I've not used one at all, and I've plugged the Les Paul into a Marshall, you know, and gone straight, like, you know, like medieval, um, which is pretty cool, too. You know, it just depends on the songs, you know, on the album Electric, that was pretty straight up, mm-hmm. you know. Cable, um, nothing in between, you know, and and that was just like a methodology that we used on that particular record.
0: Now that um, was that was uh, Bob Rock.
1: That was Rick Rubin. Oh,
0: Rick Rubin. Had you moved to L.A. at that point?
1: Um, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really consider that I'd moved anywhere. I mean, I, the late eighties, I found myself in L.A. a lot, living uh-huh. in furnished rented apartments, paid for by the month with rented cars i I, to be quite truthful i spent most of my time on tour so i didn't really live anywhere although i do remember choosing to spend a lot of time in los angeles
0: did you feel that rick rubin i I mean i think he had just done the beastie boys album is that right Correct.
1: yeah that's exactly it
0: i noticed that you kind of are more more of a straight ahead rock band on the electric album did he push you guys that way? Yeah, yeah, he
1: encouraged us. The interesting thing was we had quite a lot of success with the Love album and a certain particular sound. And we, we'd basically gone on the road around the world and we could just sense and feel that we wanted to rock harder and right. kind of move in that direction. That was what we were feeling. That's what we were, were really Experiencing, and, and we we also know we felt the world was heading in that direction. You know, I mean, we we were kind of right. You know, I mean, Guns yeah. N' Roses happened very shortly thereafter. Right. So yeah. you, you know what I mean. So we kind of knew which way the wind was blowing, and we needed a producer that could help us develop our sound. And in this respect, Rick is the guy. And I'm quoting Rick Rubin: "I didn't really produce the cult so much as I reduced the cult." <laughs>
0: yeah my,
1: but that's rick's quote uh-huh. and uh, that's what he did we, we made the follow-up to the love album with the same producer and it just was a bit of a mess it wasn't quite what we wanted to do so we got rick involved and um you know we ended up making the album very quickly from the ground up so we recorded it twice uh, very minimalist uh, george reculius was there as well who at the time was rick's partner uh-huh. and uh, that worked really well and we, we had Andy Wallace engineering it, who uh, who now is some sort of, like, mixing demigod. Oh, my gosh. You know, he's one of the most famous mix guys in the world, and we were fortunate enough to have him record and mix our albums. So. Right. It was all good, you know?
0: Then your next album, Sonic Temple, that's when I remember really discovering you guys. I think, um, I, think I saw you guys on Saturday Night Live. Do you recall playing Firewoman on Saturday Night Live?
1: No, I wish we had. We played we played She sells so Sanctuary on Saturday Night Live oh, in, in sometime okay. in the eighties. 86. I wish we'd have played Firewoman on Saturday Night Live, but <laughs> fortunately we never got the chance.
0: Must have been She Sells so Sanctuary that I saw, but I just remember, you know, that was a time when there was Eddie Van Halen, you know, and Randy Rhodes and all these uh spandex kind of bands too. And uh there was Ian in his leather pants. I don't know if you had the, if you had the Gretsch or not, but you guys were just straight ahead rock. And it kind of, it kind of made an impression on me because I was involved in all the, and all the crazy stuff that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we rocked out. I mean, we like, we're into rock and that was kind of where we're at. I don't ever think the cult was particularly ever a metal band. Um, I just think we were, uh, we're into rock and, yeah. We just had as much fun as we could at the time. You know, we didn't think about it too hard. We just played what felt organically right for us to do, and uh, you know, that's kind of how we did it. We didn't really overthink about too much about what other people were doing. We just followed uh, followed our instinct, uh-huh. and uh, that was, yeah, Sonic Temple. That that, that kind of was a you know fairly big record for us, and uh, you know, that was pretty cool. We had a few hits. That kind of blew us up in America. You know,
0: uh, yeah. You know, you have worked with some great producers like Rick Rubin and. And Bob Rock, yeah, Yeah, So, what's it like working with those guys? Were they completely different, like Bob Rock and R- Rick Rubin, or were they alike in any ways?
1: Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, they're both. You know, they're both very strong, confident individuals. Um, I don't think Rick Rubin would describe himself as a musician, mm-hmm. whereas Bob Rock, you know, was a guitar player. He wrote some hits. Right with a couple of Canadian bands that he was in.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so Bob's more of a musician, a player, whereas Rick is really just somebody who can observe, you know, the essence of rock. I wouldn't even know, even think he would know a difference between three chords, but he, know, you know, he knows what, he knows what not to play. Uh-huh. In fairness, you know, we, we worked with Rick very early on in his career. And then we worked with him again in 93 on a song for a movie, Cool World, the song called The Witch. So, you have to respect these guys, you know, they, they don't get lucky repeatedly, you know, No, it's you know, I, I would say that my only comment, you know, Bob Rock is probably a little more able to get songs out of you. If you don't have them fully written, he can help with the construction of the songs. Whereas uh-huh. I think a Rick Rubin is more adept at the songs have to be there. And I think that Rick really knows how to shape, reduce, stylize, minimize, Interesting. Um, you know, Whatever, but the songs kind of have to be written. He's not going to really be very good at, you know, helping you find that extra missing chord other than tell you that it is missing and you need it.
0: Would either of those guys ask uh, Ian to change a lyric here and there?
1: I think all producers have to get on some sort of intimate level with the vocalist. Yeah. And I think it's very different. I usually leave that alone. Uh-huh. I let them get on with their own, not my time, but I believe mm-hmm. that all producers, you know, have to be able to. Um, empathize and get performances out of singers, you know.
0: So, of course, your focus is on the music and Ian's is the vocals.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's the lyricist, he's the lead singer, you know, he does all that. I just try and do the soundtrack, you know.
0: Right. (laughs) So um, let's get back to gear. You've used Valve amps. What type of amps do you like?
1: Um, You know, I, I still use the same basics. I use matchless amps. I'm a big fan of matchless. And I I have a bad cat that I like, which was essentially designed by the same guy, Mark Samson, Uh Um, you know, which to me were the first boutique amps, you know, built. I like what they do. Um, We've already covered the JC120 for that certain kind of thing that I look for. Mm -hmm. And then I I generally use Marshall amps. They're readily available. You know, I've got a good relationship with Marshall. You know, regardless of what you might see on the stage in terms of cabinets, there's usually always a Marshall amp thumping away out of a 4 by 12 or 2. As a matter of fact, I like two by 12s
0: So you still do the JC-120 along with the Marshall?
1: Yeah, yeah. I have a three-way switching system that I use, and I switch between, usually on the road, it's a matchless, a Marshall, and the JC-120, and I mix and match all three uh, per the songs because, you know, I have like a 30-year career to span sonically, so I have to try and, you know, kind of at least make an attempt to, to get some of those key sounds uh, for people. So it's a bit more complex um, than, right. you know.
0: Do you have, you still use Boss pedals? Are some of them in effects loops now?
1: I just use Boss pedals. Well, I actually used to have, um, a, for a few years, I had a couple of very highfalutin MIDI control rack systems. Uh uh-huh. um, But frankly, the way things have gone in the practicalities of touring um, I went back to using pedals on the floor and and pedal boards. I went, I re- regressed uh-huh. uh, for a, basically for practical, pragmatic reasons,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, you know. And I've ended up using just old school. I always used to use pedals; they were in a rack, right? You know, I don't like multi effects. I like real pedals individually in a box. And I used to have them, and I still have a rack system and a switchable system. But they they need a consistency of your crew and. The, the, the equipment you use and that's not always feasible so uh that's why i went back a few years ago to using pedal boards on the floor that are basically you know i can fly in with two guitars and a pedal board and i can make a show happen
0: in your pedal board you have a sd1 uh
1: an sd1 uh
0: super overdrive
1: yeah i used it on the uh, all in my early career
0: i l- i love that pedal because it doesn't really change your tone
1: i i would agree uh I still use an SD one, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have one. You see my pedal board? They do a certain thing very well, yeah. So I use an SD one. That's the only one I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the super overdrive, yeah. And I use the Flanger
0: BF three
1: Phaser. You know, I don't, I don't look at the numbers, you know. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I just because I kind of work for Boss now and then. I've got to memorize all those. But before I worked for him, I would just say the purple pedal or the. Yeah. That's exactly
1: how I roll because I don't work for Boss, so <laughs> yeah. I just go oh, the per, you know the PERP one. They work; they're readily available. Um, I'm a great believer in using equipment that doesn't fail me, right. uh, you know. And Boss certainly qualifies. But you know, from time to time, I use other pedals in conjunction right. with that. But I, but I I stuck with Boss delays, the Flanger.
0: Billy, have you tried the DD7, the new digital delay?
1: You know, if it's a multi-effects pedal, it does seventy-four different things. No, no,
0: it's the it's the new, um, it's just the new version of the compact pedal of the delay pedal, and it, and it has a plug-in where you can plug in an external pedal and tap in the delay rate.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nah, it's not too complicated. I just uh, and go. <laughs> just you know, DD three. Yeah, I you know I'm just too into the performance. I don't want to be thinking about equipment. I just mm-hmm. for my limited you know mental abilities on stage, I just need to click something on mm-hmm. and go. You know, because to me, live's all about the performance. Mm-hmm. I just I use a couple of three delays in, in different settings, and I find that that just works sufficient for my needs with the call.
0: So you've got one delay set fast, one delay set slow, and you have a third one.
1: It? One delay, so. Set slower.
0: So three different rates, and uh, are they all Boss delays? Yeah, that slower. DD three? The do you recall? It's the silver one.
1: They're the silver ones. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. What's in the future for the the Colt?
1: Well, right now, the most important thing for me is I've got a signature Gret. Yeah, that's really what I'm trying to. You know, I've got a signature white Vulcan that, that uh, just just beginning to get delivered next month, and I'm really uh-huh. uh, excited about uh, you know about that. I'm very proud of the guitar. That's the main thing that I've, I've got going on. I've got, um, you know, I've got a website. Just for people who are interested in the guitar aspects of the call. you know, I, mm-hmm. I finally knuckled down and got my own website, com. Great. So, you know, that's uh, for anybody who's remotely interested in more minutiae of the call or me as a kid growing up and all that information's there. Oh, cool. As regards the call, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I know there are plans for us to go out on tour in the summer mm-hmm. uh, with a pretty interesting tour that's been worked on. But that's, you know, look out for us starting in the US in the, in the mid, probably July.
0: Great. Great. And you guys, tour, so. you guys have a new album out?
1: We okay. had a new album that came out last year. Last year. In May. So, whatever that means, for that right. when the album was released. And Did yeah, you- we toured that all last year.
0: Choice of Weapon.
1: Yeah, Choice of Weapon. Uh, some, got some kind of award on uh, iTunes. Not quite sure what it got. He got the number one album for something in iTunes. It was pretty cool. Hey,
0: um, you've totally influenced me to check out some hollow body guitars. I'm going to check out yours right away.
1: Check out mine because uh definitely rocks.
0: Question that I should have asked earlier your string gauge, when I was asking about staying in tune or, or getting in tune, do you use a heavier gauge?
1: I've used Ernie Ball strings since the 80s, uh-huh. and I've never seen any reason to change. They, they've always treated me very well.
0: Nines or tens?
1: I use 10 to 46
0: uh-huh.
1: in the studio, and live I use 11 to 48 because we tune half a step down.
0: Uh huh.
1: And then if I'm doing a drop D song, you know, if we have a drop D, which effectively would be half a step down plus a drop, effectively, another two frets down. I'll use a heavier... uh,
0: Low E-string.
1: Yeah, just like a 52 I'll throw (laughs) on there. So that's basically it, nothing mysterious or magical. The yellow Ernie balls and the purple Ernie balls, in in essence. Kirco picks, Flex 50. Kerko. Dunlop make them for me now. I've got my own. They're... The nylon... Flex 50 Hercos, always have done since I was a kid.
0: Are those the gray ones?
1: They're the, no, they're the uh, gold ones. A bit light, you might say, but not if you use them sideways like I do.
0: So do you You don't use the tip?
1: I use the side, rated side, forwards.
0: Interesting. I've got to look at some close-ups of your, your hands now.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true, though. Yeah. On that. I've never, I've never used a guitar pick straight down. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, uh, you are the rhythm guitar king. You know, one thing I noticed is that you you weren't influenced by other people. All this, you know, Eddie Van Halen crazy stuff is going on, and you're just digging in. Well, I was
1: influenced more by, I mean, the same time Eddie Van Halen was going on, I think ACDC were doing quite well with, like, Back in Black and stuff, and that's basic rock also. In a certain part of the world, you know, I mean, Guns N' Roses slash straightforward rock. Right. So only a certain element of the world... Got into that kind of, you know. I mean, you know, Eddie's great. Don't yeah. be wrong; it's not a criticism. It was so technical. It was so beyond what I could, you know, and that, the whole type of guitar you had to use and yeah. get the whole thing. I, I, it just didn't. It just wasn't my thing. I, I kind of appreciated it. I, I love Van Halen's simplicity of the sound. I mean, a really magical. You know, that stuff was very well produced, yeah. very minimalist in terms of how much was was going on. Uh-huh. You know. You know, uh, very organic. I mean, Ted Templeman produced them. Yep. You know, um, did early Montrose, which I was a massive fan of the first Montrose album when I was a kid.
0: Oh my gosh, what a great album. Space Station number 5. I
1: observed my rock history. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, if you know your rock history, you know why the first Van Halen album sounded like they did, with a combination of the brilliance of the Van Halen brothers and the band but also who produced it, why, how, you know.
0: Yeah, oh my God. You know, you got,
1: that's where you got to know your rock history, you know. You've got to know your blues before you can listen to your Led Zeppelin, you know, you, or right. your Cream or, you know, the Yardbirds. You've got to listen to the blues yeah. stuff as well to understand where that comes from. But sooner or later, you need to know the source.
0: Gosh. And that's not, so not
1: come in at the level, you know, I find a lot of bad guitar players don't know their history. They just come in at a certain level and they're all about technique and effects and equipment. Right? They need to be more about life experience, soul, you know, the blues, you know, they need to understand what the blues means to them. Then they'll organically become the kind of musician that is a leader, not a follower.
0: That's great advice. That's totally right, you know.
1: So that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm peeking now. Go, 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 pick me up. <laughs> Great thanks, talking, Skip, brother.
0: Thanks so much, Billy. You have an awesome day in Florida, and uh, great talking to you too. Don't
1: forget check the White Falcon out.
0: Rich, I'm on my way to the store.
1: <laughs> go, go and check one out. It's
0: going to be great. Good luck on that guitar, and good luck in all your endeavors.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. A
0: pleasure talking to you, man. Thank you too, Billy. See you later. Bye bye. Our thanks go out to Billy Duffy for coming on the show, and thank you. We're using Boss pedals and other gear. Remember, you can find out everything you want to know about Boss gear at BossUS.com. Paul Hansen saying, see ya.